Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com/now. Ringo Starr is one of the most iconic musicians living today. Famed drummer for the Beatles and a prolific songwriter in his own right. At 81, Ringo's gearing up to release his latest EP, Change the World. Following the Beatles' breakup in 1970, Ringo released a run of successful solo albums and chart-topping hits. In addition to a budding film career and work as a session player for artists like George Harrison, Bob Dylan, and the Beach Boys, Ringo also formed his all-star band, who for the past 30 years have included a rotating lineup of some of the world's best musicians. Rick Rubin and Ringo recorded this interview the day it was announced that Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts passed away. On today's episode, you'll hear Ringo reminisce about partying with Charlie and Led Zeppelin's drummer, John Bonham. Ringo also talks about how he was a drunk heckler at Beatles shows before he joined the band and why Paul McCartney was the only Beatle who would share a room with him. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Ringo Starr. There you are. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I'm good, Rick. I was just uh, on the phone to Paul who gave me great advice of how to deal with you. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> he said, you're a wonderful human being. <laughs> it's a weird day for us to be talking because... Um, Charlie. Because Charlie's passing. And I, I just wanted to ask you, any fond memories of Charlie? I have a lot of fond memories of Charlie and... 
you know, just because you like music, I mean, my line always used to be over the years, what do you think of Charlie? I said, well, Charlie plays even less than I do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and any musician got that one. But, uh, yeah, we had some nights out. Uh, someone was just telling me Charlie's quote, well, you know, what do you think about Ringo's drumming? He said, well, I don't know much of that about his drummer, but we have a great time when we go out together. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, it's sad. It's like... Yeah. But it happens, you know, that's the deal. That's part of growing up. Yeah. But he was a great player. I mean, he held those guys together, for God's sake. His job was harder than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was incredible. Incredible. I feel like as good as it as good as it's ever been done. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're from the school where you don't have to be busy. And my my absolute, you know, when anyone tells me or asks me how to play, well, you know, you don't need, if the singer's singing, you don't need to be doing drum boogie. You know what I mean? Just hold them yeah. together and then you do fills. That's how I work. Uh, yes. With the song, you know. Something that changed with your style, though, like in the early Beatles stuff, it was more straightforward. Like, playing a yeah. beat through the song but then as time went on it got more almost orchestral like answering answering yeah, yeah. what the other things were going on how did that start how did the switch happen i think that just was a natural progression well i actually understand what you're saying and you know when the abbey road came out two years ago now i think the remaster they had a big uh get together at Abbey Road and friends and family and all the kids and they had a playback and I'm playing, I'm sitting next to Paul and I'm going, man, I'm much too busy. <laughs> 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 you know? And, you know, if you listen to Bathroom Window and those, that side of that album, I got the new drums, you know, a new kit of drums and they had actually calf heads I never had calf heads, they were always plastic. And the depth, everything I'd been trying to get with the tea towels and putting packs of cigarettes to deaden them, because of the skin, the depth was so great. So, you know, she came in through blah, 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 bathroom windows. <laughs> like, it's all, all over those tracks. I think that's just how I felt then. I just loved the sounds. I was going to put them on, you know. I just did a uh, master class. Yes. And I was trying to tell them, you know, there's parts the drummer plays, like bump, bump, diggity doo, diddly diddly doo. You know, that's a part. And then there's fills, you know, ba dum, ba bum, ba da ba 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 dum. You know, there is a difference to it. They, they you know, they, they all think like it's all fills. Well, no, not really. It's part of it. Besides Charlie from the old days, who were the other drummers that you were impressed by? Who were the ones you liked? Well, I was impressed by a, a lot of different drummers, but, you know, how weird it may sound, you know, I, I only ever practiced once and then I learned how to play joining bands of Liverpool. We all made the same mistakes and got it together. And when I played a record, you know, Solomon Burke, doesn't matter who, I listened to the record and it wasn't like listening, the drums were just good. And uh, Al Green's I'm a Ram, it's like a, one of those moments in my life. I'm in London in an apartment George and I shared, but he was out and Klaus Vorman and I were playing records. And he goes, I'm around. He does this crazy, it's like part of it. 
And that sort of helped me on. Well, I can make parts now, you know what I mean? It, like, oh, that blew me away. It was such a simple move that yeah. uh, it changed my life and my way of drumming, just that hi-hats. Amazing. It's amazing how we hear the things that we need to hear at the right time to move us on our journey, you know? It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's like you can't plan it. No, it's impossible. It just happens. I mean, it, it's like the ever-continuing story of sliding doors. You know, if Klaus hadn't have come over, you know, in this moment, if I hadn't have been in or whatever, we'd have had another drink and forgot that, you know, whatever. But it moved me along. I, I wanted to ask you about your singing on the new EP because it sounds like you're singing better than ever. And, oh, thanks, um, coming from you, brother. That's good. <laughs> no, you say, it's amazing. You know, I think the more you do it, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, uh, you know, I get a lot of help from my engineer who says, uh, let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you do a cover of Rock Around the Clock, and I wanted to ask you, do you remember the first time you ever heard the song Rock Around the Clock? Like it was yesterday. Tell me. Yeah, so I'm in hospital. I have my 14th birthday in hospital. And we're weeks away from my 15th birthday. And I don't want to be there for my 15th birthday. And I'm well now. I'm out of bed. I'm walking. I'm running, you know, playing. I'm 14. And so my mom and I tried to get me out before my birthday. And we went to talk to the doctors and they checked me in. Anyway... A couple of weeks before I was 15, they said, you can leave, you know. I had TB. So we came out, we went down to London to my stepdad's family and said hi to them. And uh, then we came back. And then a couple of weeks later, my grandparents, who brought me off with my mother, uh, were going to the Isle of Man. That's an island just off England. It was like the holiday spot. It was like the Florida of the north of England. They would go over, the guys from the factories and that would kiss me quick hats and, you know, they were the lads. Anyway, Rock Around the Clock, the movie was playing and I went to see the movie and besides Bill Haley blew me away, they ripped up the cinema. They pulled the seats out, they were throwing them at the screen, they were just rock and roll crazy. And I thought, that's good. (laughs) 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 And... uh, you know, that's, that was probably another move moved me to music. But, you know, the thing with Bill Haley was he was always like your dad. We were teenagers, young teenagers, and he was just like your dad. He played rock. He was the only one. And the BBC actually played him several times, you know, because they played nothing. The BBC was so boring living in the past. But then when Eddie Cochran and Elvis, of course, and, you know, Buddy, all that crowd came out. It was like, well, all right, let's rock. You know, rock sort of came to its place. But we did have a lot of incredible sort of blues player. I love the blues, you know, and everyone knows my story with Lightning Hopkins and uh, a lot of other players, of course. And, and country came out, got into that, loved that. And I was on the road to music now, you know, and I was playing with Liverpool Band. Then I ended up with Rory. And while I was with Rory, I mean... Brian Epstein knocked on the door. I was a musician. We didn't get up till noon. Bang, bang. Uh, the Beatles are doing a lunchtime session. Would you, you know, Pete can't make it. Could you come down? That's where I started playing with them. And uh, then out of the blue, we were on this gig for a holiday camp. Three-month gig in those days was incredible. And I got a phone from Brian. So that moved that on. You know what I mean? So just being where you're being is, it's like 
there's no explanation really. You can just say it happened, you know. Meant to be, <laughs> meant to be. You know, the, the fun part of when I joined the Beatles was all the people in Liverpool saying, you're not leaving Rory, are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> Rory was the biggest band at the time. I said, yeah, I'm leaving that front line. I love that front line. And that's wow. how it started. Did you ever record in the studio prior to being in the Beatles? No, we did a demo. Rory and the Hurricanes did a demo in Germany, like the Beatles did with Tony Sheridan yeah. and Acetate. And uh, the fun side of that was I lost mine somewhere in the shuffle of life. So I, I called Johnny Guitar, who was the guitarist in Rory's band. And I said, man, you know, I've lost mine. Would you make me a coffee? And he says, no. <laughs> he wasn't even make me a coffee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But that was the only time I'd ever been near a studio. Was it different playing in the studio than playing on stage? Yeah. Why? Well, because, you know, I mean, I, to this day, I love the audience. You know, they, I love the audience. They know that, so they love me. We have a love fest. And, uh, you know, my mother said a thing years before. She said, you know what, son? You always seem at your happiest when you're playing. You know, that was a great yeah. line I remembered. And I did. I love to play. I play now. I mean, I never practiced, but if you came with a piano or a bass, didn't matter, guitar, I'd sit with you all night. I would play <laughs> with another person, but not by myself. I never liked being bum You know, it's like, what? It's not what it's about. Oh, tell me about skiffle music, because skiffle music was before all of the music styles skiffle, that you talked skiffle about. Skiffle music, if you had the instrument, you were in the band. <laughs> 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 and uh, I had a snare drum, so I was in the band. But the, one, the band, I, the first band, Eddie Clayton Skiffle Group, and Lonnie Donegan, and it was like, you know, New Orleans house party blues, you know, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good. What do we know about the Rock Island Line? <laughs> Nothing. But, uh, you know, we're in Liverpool. But songs like that, you know, and hey, Lily, Lily, Lily. And, you know, the laugh was you could play anything skiffle in one chord. But anyway, next door neighbor and worked in the same factory was a guy called Eddie Miles, who liked to call himself Eddie Clayton. But he was an incredible guitar player. And I had my snare drum, and then I had my friend Roy in the factory, and he took up the tea chest, just a tea chest with a you know a broom pole and a piece of string. So he turned into the bass player. So we were the trio, and we went round playing skiffle songs, you know, and that's how it started. And you know, one of the things we did in those days, we'd play weddings, we'd play anywhere, <laughs> we didn't care, and we were playing at this dance. And people were dancing to us, but we had no sense of time, so we'd learn. Everything would get faster and faster, <laughs> like an express. <laughs> and, and they'd be like, can you slow it down? Can you slow it down? <laughs> we'd, hey, Lily, Lily, Lily. Hey, Lily, Lily, We'd get excited or whatever. And anyway, so I learned my lesson, and I'm a great timekeeper. <laughs> uh, but at the beginning, you don't know. You're just excited. So skiffle music... Skiffle music gave us all a chance to play. Yeah. And the government didn't know what they were doing when they, you know, we used to have the call up, you had to go in the army at 18. And they came out and made an announcement that after the wars in the 50s, they said, if you were born after November 1939, you don't have to come in the army. I said, Whoa. 
great. Because, you know, I was like an apprentice because if you had a job or something of experience, they'd put you like on the back bench, you know what I mean? But if you were just a working guy, they'd take you in the army. So that was like an incredible moment because I just thought, okay, another, what, eight months, nine months. How are you doing, Captain? <laughs> you know? So anyway, that's uh, what happened there. And then we don't think of skiffle as a popular music in the U.S., but in, it sounds like in the U.K., oh, huge skiffle music was essentially coming. Was it coming from America? The the roots of it? Yeah, it was it America? It's like the blues. You know, we'd do a blues song. The Stones would do a blues song, and it wasn't really big in America. And then everyone got into the blues because we were passing it back. Yeah, I was blessed, or we were blessed. We lived in Liverpool because it was a port. <laughs> So all the guys, you know, the 18 to 24s would go to America. You know, it was the Merchant Navy. They weren't in the Navy. And uh, they'd bring all these records back, and then they'd spend all their money uh, getting drunk, and then they'd sell their records. And we were picking those records up. It was incredible, you know, the records we had in those days. So that, you know, you have to thank them. <laughs> we'll be back after a short break with more from Ringo. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo. 
Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. We're back with more from Rick Rubin's conversation with Ringo Starr. Besides Rock Around the Clock, what were the songs when you heard them at like life-changing songs from childhood? Well, you know, I'm a sentimental fool, uh, Eddie Calvert's uh, Oh My Papa. (laughs) And I was blessed with my stepdad because he liked big bands. He had big band fever. And like Billy Eckstein and, you know, Billy Daniels. And I just remember the Billies he always played. Yeah. And, and he was so great with me because I'd be playing whatever I'm playing. And he'd say, have you heard this? You know, and he'd move me up a step. And the time he said to me, have you heard this? And he never said that shit, get it off. He just said, hey, have you heard this? And he, he gave me Sarah Vaughan. <laughs> I said, well, wow. yeah, that was far out now looking back. Yes. So she changed my life. She doesn't know it. Amazing. Amazing. And I bet, I bet other kids in the UK weren't hearing that kind of music. They weren't. And Glenn Miller and all the big bands of the day. You know, it, the side story to this is when we were the Beatles and we were opening for Helen Shapiro, she had uh, this band. Do you remember the Ted Heath big band? Mm-mm. It was a big band in England at the time, the 50s, he was huge. Anyway, they were all like his players. But anyway, we were lads and I'm saying, yeah, hi, what are you doing how old are you? And he'd say, like, 40. 40, and you're still playing. <laughs> we were looking at them like these real old guys, but, hey, I'm way past 40. <laughs> Did you always imagine playing music young and then getting a job? Was that always, like, how you imagined life going? Uh, no, I dreamt from when I was 13 in this same hospital. This hospital had a lot to do with me because I was laying in bed, that we had people come round and uh, teach you to knit and stuff you can do in bed, and you had to knit, and they brought in these uh, maracas and tambourines and little drums and, uh, like, acoustic stuff you can hit and shake. And I hit that drum, and I wanted to be a drummer. Wow. And every time she came back, if she didn't give me a drum, I wouldn't play in the band. (laughs) You know? It was like... Lightning, lightning attacked me, and I wanted to be only from that that moment. I wanted to be a drummer, and when I came out of hospital, I go around the stores. There's quite a few uh, music stores in Liverpool. You know, it's a pretty musical city, really. And just look at the drums, and you know, God's gift. I mean, my stepdad's uncle died. We lived in Liverpool. He went down to London, outside London, Romford, to go to the funeral. Little did he know, the guy was a drummer, and he saw that upstairs they had all these drums. And he asked the guy's wife, would she sell them to him? Could he buy those drums? And he brought me my first kit. 
that gave me a snare drum that allowed me to join all those early bands. Amazing. You know, it's like magic. Something you said earlier is interesting to me that you first heard the song that you covered in a movie. It's interesting because we now we think of if you hear a song in a movie, it's because it's already popular in the world and now it's in a movie. You know, then you get to see it in a yeah, movie. Yeah. But yeah. it sounds like for you, it was the opposite where the first time you got to hear it was in a movie. Yeah. But, you know, Bill was huge in that time. And it was rock and roll. I mean, we'd never heard of it. You know, we went from skiffle into rock into soul music, really. And one of the good, do you know Tommy Steele, the English singer from the mm -hmm. 50s and 60s? He was in the Merchant Navy and he came back and he was starting to sing at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in London. And they were saying, well, what do you call that music? And he'd go, I think I'm going to call it rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and all the British press, well, he's calling it rock and roll. <laughs> like he invented it. It was so fun. Because <laughs> there wasn't a lot of rock and roll interest in England at the time, you know? Yes. It's, uh, you know, all the family parties I went to, it was all music from the 40s, really. Everybody had to sing. Like show tunes. Show tunes and stuff like that, yeah. So anyway, you know, my moves came from out of the blue. And that made me go left or right. And, make, and in my opinion, made the right decisions. Was it as much the energy of rock and roll that spoke to you first? Was it like, what was it? How, how would you describe the connection, having never heard it before? Never heard it before. I heard Bill Haley. And he was rocking. But more than important, all those teenagers loved rock and roll. They'd been into it wherever it was. And the, their attitude was, if we hear rock and roll, we rip up the cinema, you know, because they were just so excited. I mean, I remember, what was that first movie Elvis did? And it was like a Western in a way. They were country yeah. boys. He's like this big on the screen, and we're going to the cinema to see Elvis in Liverpool. And this big, all the girls screamed. You know, and we said, we can't even fucking see him. You know, there he comes. They knew he was coming and they took off. So we were not the first band to be screamed at. Was there a turning point when it went from feeling like you were in a band, like everybody, like the other, the other lads that were in bands, to where it felt like, okay, this is really different being in this band? In my own way, it's all about the band. And I... My, my, all my moves were to get in better bands. And uh, as we know where we ended up. But anyway, Rory was great because it was a show band. And we had suits and, you know, <laughs> we were dressed up from those days, more like the 50s. You know, his big act of craziness at the end of, of the set was he'd be singing some rock number. And he'd get up. There was always an upright piano behind me. He'd climb on that and jump over my head. <laughs> to the floor <laughs> but so it was like a lot of Rory in the Hurricanes we had the Johnny guitar was this incredible rhythm guitarist I loved him and he stood there and he played I always relate him to Jimi Hendrix and Rory did his stuff and Lou had a great voice he would do Mailman giving all you know Buddy Holly's numbers and it really worked but when we ended up in Germany playing the Kaiser Keller 
and the Beatles were playing down the road in the Bambikino, living behind the toilet. Then Kashmida, the guy who owned both clubs, decided to put us both on the same club. Uh, that's where I became a huge fan of the Beatles, of that front line. I have to say, I only love that front line. And where we got our strength from, and I think helped us become who we are, was between two bands we did on a weekend, we did 12 hours between us. And, you know, you get to know what you're doing <laughs> and you get to play and you get to feel each other, you know. And then I went back and played a month with Tony Sheridan and, you know, that was off the... Uh, it was like the Music City. Hamburg was great. It's very sad now. I was there a couple of years ago with Klaus and it's all gone. But anyway, things change. <laughs> yes. You know. What did you see in that front line? Like when you would go to see them play before you joined the band, what was it like? How were they different? They were just, their vibe was so tight and great. And then, you know, Rory and I, you know, the group would finish and they'd have another two hours to do or an hour or something. I'd always just, I was drunk by then, of course. Uh, we were teenagers. Well, not really. It was in my 20s. <laughs> uh, but I would just sit in the front, you know, in front of the club, not in front of the stage. And just, yeah. And then, you know, it would empty out because they were on till four in the morning or something. And I'd request songs. I don't remember one song I requested. You have to call Paul. And later on, when I, and I just loved the front line. It was powerful. And it was the best Frontline in Liverpool. That's how it was. And when I joined the band, John was talking to me one day. He says, you know, we used to be really scared of you. Because <laughs> I'd be that guy. Hey, play me, you know, three balls in a fat. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> I'd be that heckler. <laughs> a drunken heckler in the back. But, yeah, something warmed my heart when I saw them. You know, yeah. I just thought. And when I would play for them, when Pete couldn't make it, yes. it, it just worked. It was great to yes. play with. It just was good for me, you know. And uh, in the end, look where you end up. Yeah, you know, amazing. Best move they ever made. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Arguably, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why did they pick me? I mean, what's that? There was other drummers, you know. Johnny Hutch. I, mean, I like to talk about Johnny Hutch. There were two drummers in Liverpool, and Johnny Hutch was the other one. Yeah. Yeah. No, but just the, the energy was right. And you can hear it when you hear the recordings to this day. Yeah. You can hear the excitement in the performances. Yeah. They're alive. You know, no one will believe how incredible it was that we were in a studio making a record, and then you saw it as your acetate first, we're always giving yes. acetates on little tapes. And it was like, you've made a record. And we knew every time it was going to be played on the BBC, because they had a playlist. So, and we were always in the same car. And, you know, it's like, love me do whatever's going to be on at uh, 11, 14. <laughs> you know? They'd have it that precise. And we'd pull over like 11, 12, get ready. Wow, it's on the radio. I mean, then to, you know, nowadays I don't think the kids understand that. The step up is easier now. But then these were major steps. 
And uh, yes. we were making them. That was what was great. Amazing. It all turned out well. Was it strange when the band decided to stop doing shows and still record? No, that was the best move we ever made. Tell me about it. We went on stage and the audience made a lot of noise. And in the end, we were playing such big venues. I couldn't hear them. You know, we were always house PA. Now it'd be great. But yes. we were the house PA, so I'd have to, like, look at Paul's foot. He was always tapping. And John had that. So, oh, yeah. And then if they went, I'd never heard it. But if they went, oh, that's where we are, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's that song. <laughs> and I couldn't do any fills. I just, just keeping it together, you know, because they were, um, bah, um, bah. there was silence. Um, bah, um, bah. I had to just keep the, the groove going. And, you know, I felt I was turning into a really not as good a drummer as I could be. I was yes. just doing it for the live. And just happened, John felt the same. And then we talked to Paul and George and uh, we thought, well, let's take a break and go in the studio and we can just be in the studio. And yeah. it turned out fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And then we lived in the studio and we, you know, the livest we got was on the roof. What's in the documentary coming out. Yeah. And even then I was laughing with Paul the other day where there's conversations going on. I'm not in the shot even. And he said, well, who wants to play live? And you hear me going, I do. <laughs> and uh, and the, the joke with the Beatles was, including the Abbey Road, let's do it in Egypt, let's do it in the Roman amphitheater, the cover, uh, let's walk across the road. I think that was Paul said, let's just walk across Abbey Road. Great. And, um, you know, with the roof show, we had gone through that, let's do it in Alaska, let's do it, you know, Mount Everest, let's do it, you know, we don't have this. And Michael Lindsay was pushing for this Roman dome drone thing in somewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, God knows where. But anyway, we, uh, well, I, I think it was Paul again, well, let's do it on the roof. Okay. <laughs> We're playing live. You know, it all happened after the big discussion of big, 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 well, let's just do this. You know, I mean, I mentioned Abbey Road because that is so iconic and it's just four boys walking across a zebra crossing, for Christ's sake. Yes. People are still doing it today. They're flying yes. in from all around the world <laughs> to stand and stop the traffic, you know. The joy is we made some great music and I'm part of it and I love that. And it's still happening today. It's amazing. Did you have you seen the Peter Jackson edit yet of the of the Let It Be stuff? I've seen six hours edited. Wow! And it's from the start, and it's a band in a room. You know what I mean? And yes. for me, the the first two hours, it's a, it's very cold because we're twicking them in a a film studio. It's too big, but yes. you know we're there, so we we got some of our troubles out. So, but this. I've seen the six hours that were was the documentary. Yes. But because of lockdown, Peter Jackson is locked in New Zealand and he has cleaned up a few bits or put a bit of this in. So I haven't seen the absolute final. Understood. But I heard Paul at a showing of an hour 40 or two hours 40 at his holiday home with his holiday friends. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, he said, it looks great. So good. When you saw the six hours, did it put you back in the room or did you, did you remember it differently than what you saw? T- tell me about the experience. No, of the six it. hours was great because I saw what I'd been moaning about for the last 30 years or 40 years that there's no joy in the first one. There's not, I didn't find one moment of joy. And when Peter took the job, God bless him, and he'd keep coming into LA with his iPad saying, look what I found, and we're laughing, and we're fooling around, we're being the lads. You know, we were musicians, we were the lads, we had our ups, we had our downs. Just how it is. And Michael sort of took the down to be the most important thing in life, you know? Which, God bless him, but that's what he did. And uh, this one shows you there's joy and there's discussions and, you know, some arguments. But uh, that's what it was always like. When you talk about discussions, I always remember years ago, early days of the Beatles, and John came in with a, a song, with a record. He said, oh, I want you to play like this. And we played it, and it had two drummers on it. I said, but it's got two drummers. He said, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just do what you do. <laughs> You know, and that's how it was. You know, you did whatever the idea was, you did what you could do. Because I yes. couldn't, I wasn't an octopus then. I couldn't, I didn't have four arms. <laughs> Talking about Johnny Hutch, one of the craziest things he ever did, and blew us all the way. There used to be a club in Liverpool, a Saturday night, all nighter. We'd all, all the bands we'd been playing would end up there. But Johnny was playing with two sticks in each hand. You've never known so many confused people in your life. <laughs> you said, what? Yeah, because yeah, he was like, that lad, all right. <laughs> what was it like when you moved from the UK to the US? You moved to California at one point in time. Yeah, well, when we landed in New York, there was no bigger moment in my life than that. We're actually in America. All the music we love is from America, and America is big. And, you know, talking about coincidences, we got off a plane from Sweden at Heathrow. Uh, What's his face? The guy who ran it, Ed Sullivan, got off a plane from New York. Didn't know anything about us. We didn't know him either. But and he, he sort of booked us. But on the way to that show, Brian had gone to Capitol that he wanted more promotion. And we landed with a number one. I mean, you can't work that out. We landed with the number one, thanks to Murray the K and all those DJs. Amazing. Far out. Because we were worried, you know, we were like, you must have heard the story that George had a, his sister lived in America and he went on holiday. So he'd be going around the record stores. Uh, have you got the Beatles? Never heard of them. You know, we're on, I think we were on the Swan label then. Yes. <laughs> and he came back saying, oh, they don't know us over there because we were used to it now, Spain. Denmark, Holland, wherever we played, it was crowded. So he was saying, oh, they don't know us. And we were like a bit worried. But anyway, we're going to America, you know, and that's what we did. And the other thing that saved our lives there, we found out from the press, because, you know, after Ed Sullivan, we all got on a train and went to Washington. We were talking to the press and they said, you know, we all come to shit on you, to shoot you down from England. Who needs it, you know? And he said, and you started shouting at us. Oh, so we love you because we were answering back. We're from Liverpool. 
They're from New York. And say, oh, well, what do you think of that? We, had, we were giving them what they were giving us, and they couldn't believe that because everyone was so paid deference to them. Oh, yes, it's very nice. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Ringo. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Willie Nelson. Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Here's the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with Ringo Starr. How would you describe the relationships within the band? Well, the big relationship, of course, with our writers, John and Paul. And, I mean, things that went on. When I joined the band, we only ever had two rooms. In hotels, we were all in the same car. We had two rooms. We were always getting to know each other. Anyway, Paul was the only one who'd sleep with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because uh, the other day, oh, we don't know if he farts or whatever, you know. Anyway, so Paul <laughs> kept it together. There's a famous story historically where when John and Yoko kind of split up for a minute and John came to California. Were you living in California at that time? I was in California at that time, yeah. Did you guys get to hang out? We got to hang out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was doing Harry Nilsson's Pussycat album. And the good and the bad thing about that was that's where Harry lost his voice. Because we were all living in a house in Malibu, like 12 of us. And uh, there was a lot of mood-altering situations. <laughs> you know, there were, one night I go into the studio, there's Keith Moon, Jim Keltner and I, we're the drummers. But we got around Keith and told him he should go home. <laughs> <laughs> but he was living at the house. You know what I mean? We were all just hanging out, taking whatever, and doing music. And we, you know, talk about Rock Around the Clock, if you heard his version. And Jesse Ed Davis, the guitar player, you know, we'd all taken like a hit of speed at, at the counting. <laughs> and so it's very fast if you listen. But Jesse Ed actually played the solo. And we were all, wow, Jesse Ed <laughs> Davis got the solo. <laughs> so a lot of old stories from the olden days. I remember going up to the upstairs room at the Rainbow, the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset, and there's yeah, some yeah. sort of a plaque there that I think that Keith's name, your name, a few of the uh, the people he spent a lot of time up there commemorated. Yeah, you ended up, you know, it's like, where, where do you end up? You've been here, you've done this, it's the second night, you know, you've been up 50 hours or whatever, and uh, you just sort of, your body would just sort of take you up those stairs, <laughs> and uh, we all, you know, because everyone up there was pretty far gone. We'd all hang out together, and it was just a great vibe. And we could go up there and be crazy, you know. One of the other crazy things that happened was I had a house in L.A., and uh, every time Led Zeppelin come, Bonham, his mission in life was to get in a car, come to my house, pick me up, and throw me in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> And then I, I remember vividly one night, I'm dressed up, I'm going out, there's a pro, whatever. And he, uh, no, John, no, John, John, I'm, look, I'm dressed. Get in the pool. <laughs> yeah, because we hung out quite a bit, John and I, it was so good. And we, then, it, then we'd sort of moved to On the Rocks. That was the next place where we hung out. Do you remember the first time you saw John Bonham play? No. But I remember the first time I, I invited the boys to a party in England. We were having a party. And it's, it's actually a great day to mention this story. And uh, Led Zeppelin come, but, uh, you know, Jimmy can't come. Jimmy doesn't come to parties. Anyway, Jimmy came. <laughs> <laughs> and John came. And I had a kid of drums upstairs in the attic. It was like the playroom. And John Bonham was playing them. And Charlie and I, God rest your soul, Charlie, Charlie and I were holding the bass drum because it was hopping and his leg was getting too short. So we were holding, and there's no photo of Charlie Watts, Ringo Starr, holding the drum, the bass drum. <laughs> ah, it was far out. Yeah. Amazing. So there are just moments in the life. I mean, the rest of the day was pretty regular. <laughs> yeah. There was, a, there was a story that I remember John told on a TV interview 
where he said when the band broke up, they all knew they were going to be okay, but they were worried about you because you weren't one of the main songwriters and they were afraid, like, what's Ringo going to do? And then when your work came out, your solo stuff post-Beatles was the most successful of any post-Beatle Right yeah. from the beginning. I know, it blew the mind, but they were all on my early records. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I sat in the garden. What am I going to do? You know, I'm not a front guy. And, yeah. uh, and I thought, well, you know, all, as we spoke before, all family parties, and we had a lot of them, Saturday nights, yes. uh, they like to get happy and merry. My mom and her sisters and uncles, and they'd all sing these songs, you know show tunes and standards. Yes. And I thought, well, I'm going to do them. You know, that was my idea. I called George Martin said, you know, to get me out of the house, it was like, okay, I'm going to sing those songs that I've listened to all my life. And so that's how we started. Then the other record was an accident with Pete Drake. So George is doing uh, All Things Must Pass. He's flown Pete in. You know, we're talking about how it happens. I sent my car to get Pete at the airport and when he came back, he said, oh, hey, horse, I see you like country music. Because I had a lot of, in those days, cassettes. And as the sessions went on, he said, you know, you should come to Nashville and make a record. And I, I can't go to Nashville, what, three, four months to make a record? He said, what? Nashville Skyline took two days. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, Oh, okay. So anyway, I ended up in Nashville, and two days later, we'd finished Bukus of Blues. <laughs> Amazing. You know? And then Richard Perry, I was at, you know, these are all side stories. Harry Nilsson and I were doing the Grammys in Nashville because uh, we were great pals, and Richard came, and I thought, oh, Richard, because he produced Harry. Man, why don't we stay after the Grammys and do a record? And he, he was the one, ah, 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 why don't we go to L.A.? Yeah, and uh, and we came to LA, and who knew John arrived, George arrived, you know the band were on it. I mean, it's, it was like an all stars record, really. Yes, and that I've kept that momentum going on the road. I have all these different places. You have to have hits. You have to want to have a good time, and yeah. uh, you know, thirty odd years we've had the all stars now. So anyway, that's how. We got to the Ringo album, which was great. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, if you look at the players, it's like a who's who. Yeah, and I bet it was super fun, Make, uh, but it was really fun to make them as well. It was. We had a lot of fun. And the No No song was fun. (laughs) 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 Because we were doing everything for the No No. (laughs) Was it it true at the time or no? (laughs) No, no, no. No, no. That's what I said. (laughs) The only thing we weren't doing was no, no. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Did you play on All Things Must Pass? I, I'm yeah. not aware of that. Yeah, yeah you sound, sound like George. <laughs> he called me up saying, Ringo, did you play on All Things Must Pass? Not? I don't know. I, I don't remember. And anyway, then when he puts the record out and the little booklet, and he said, Ringo didn't even remember he didn't mention he didn't remember I hadn't played. <laughs> you know? So that was a great track, great album. It's a really good album. And so what, what, other, what other post-Beatles stuff did you play on with the other lads? Well, they played on mine. I played, of course, the Plastic Owner Band. It was just yeah. incredible. Just John yes. 
and uh, Klaus and I, yes. and John going through Primal Scream. So it wasn't even in between takes. Sometimes in the take, he would get it out. You know, it was great. It's great to be Amazing. part of that one. I love that record. And because it's three of us, you know what I mean? You, the dynamics yeah. are just really great. And uh, I played on Leon Russell's first album, solo album, Stephen Stills. And I played on B.B. King in London. You know, after my yeah. sort of six weeks after the breakup, uh, I got on my feet and started moving and playing and doing. You know, and that's all it takes. But I did have like a moment of sadness. What am I going to do? And yeah. look what I'm doing now. I'm talking to you. The great, <laughs> the great Rick Rubin. <laughs> I can remember you coming to the studio to play on a Tom Petty song. Yeah. At East West. Oh, the studio, yeah. Yeah. You played a smaller drum kit than most of the other drummers who had played, and you seemed to be working less hard than everybody else, and the sound, the tone coming off the drums filled the room much more than anybody else, and, I, and it, was, it looked like a magic trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I played. I mean, I, you know, people say, well, how do you play? Well, I, this is what I do. You know, it's uh, and the other thing about Tom was I said I'll I'll play on four tracks because I don't yeah. want to live with him forever because he was a beautiful human <laughs> being. He yes. was. I called him once. I was making a record, and I called him and he said I'll do it. I said I haven't even asked you yet. He said, Look, I'll do it. <laughs> and he came and sang this song that somebody else had sang with me, but their management thought it would ruin their whole career. <laughs> so Tom just came out, and I was in some of, the, some of their videos, so we, we were hanging, you know. But uh, when I said, okay, I'll play on four, by three, I'd had enough. <laughs> As you were there, I said, and, and he said, trickier than you thought, aren't they? Because <laughs> there were some, like, weirdness. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember at that point in time, we really would orchestrate how the drums would go. And you were used to a different style of playing where you would just kind yeah. of groove through it yeah, and yeah. then play fills. And it was fascinating to me the way you worked. And it really worked out great for the stuff you played on with Tom. Yeah, good. <laughs> they sent me a gold disc. You know, he got a gold disc for that record. Great. So he, he sent me one. I, I was looking around, but I've just moved around my uh, some of my stuff, and I've I've taken that one down. Anyway, Rick, you got one more minute. Okay, I'm good. It's a pleasure speaking to you and seeing you again. Okay, and I look forward to doing it again soon. I'm gonna Facetime Paul and tell him you're a pushover. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. He called me today because he knew I'd say, oh, you know, <laughs> you'll want to know about drums and music. <laughs> okay. Peace and love. Peace and love. Talk to you later, man. Thanks to Ringo Starr for talking about the good old days with Rick. To hear Ringo's new EP, Change the World, and all of our favorite Ringo songs, check out brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia Lovell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. 
Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like this show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.